Welcome to $100 Plus Mileage. This is the podcast about New Hampshire's citizen legislature, where our 400 representatives and 24 senators debate about 1,000 bills each year and get paid $100 plus mileage for their time. Each week, we talk about a New Hampshire bill with an upcoming opportunity for you to share your opinion and make your voice heard. We've talked about everything from weather experiment regulations to hobby distilling to a ban on cat declawing. Today, we're talking about water contamination in our schools, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm Anna Brown, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count. And I'm Mike Dunbar, Content Editor for Citizens Count. Anna, water contamination isn't quite as fun to talk about as weather experiments and hobby distilling. I know. I, I really did not pick the happiest subject. We've all seen the headlines in recent years about PFAS in our water and whether that has anything to do with the childhood cancer cluster on the seacoast, stories about people in Merrimack getting pallets of bottled water from the state. Sometimes I wonder if my nonstick pan is going to kill me, and it's really not uplifting. But we're not even talking about PFAS today. We're talking about an older well-known contaminant, and that's lead. Yeah, and I've heard about lead paint. You know, that's a big issue in New Hampshire's old houses. But I guess I've been living in blissful ignorance as to what might be happening in terms of lead pipes in New Hampshire. Uh, I assume you're going to ruin that for me, though. Yep. Old lead service lines, solder on pipes, and brass faucets and valves can all contain lead. In fact, faucets made before 2014 can contain up to 8% lead, that lead can leach into the water we drink. Yeah, that feels like too much lead to me. I don't know a lot about this, but that feels like too much. I'm not a scientist, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I understand that lead can be most harmful to children. That's correct. Lead is particularly toxic to children and can cause developmental delays, hyperactivity, aggression, kidney damage, and a lot of other problems. Every year, hundreds of children in New Hampshire under age six show elevated lead levels in their blood. But there is some good news. The number of children with elevated lead levels in their blood has declined over the past few years in New Hampshire. However, policymakers argue lead poisoning is 100% preventable, and New Hampshire should aim for zero children with elevated lead levels in their blood. Yeah, I remember back in 2018, legislators passed a big bill to fight childhood lead poisoning, which was called SB 247, and that established universal blood testing for lead in children aged one and two, created no interest loans for landlords to address lead contamination in older houses, and required schools and licensed childcare facilities to test water for lead and other things. So if a water test reveals lead levels over 15 parts per billion, SB 247 requires schools and daycares to install new plumbing or address the contamination in some other way. 15 parts per billion is the Federal Environmental Protection Agency's limit for lead in public water systems. Okay, so let's talk about what has happened since SB 247 became law. The first round of water testing revealed about 5% of New Hampshire schools and child care facilities had water outlets with lead levels over that federal limit. I looked at the spreadsheet of statewide test results, and I have to comment that in some cases, it was way over the federal limit. Like, there was a water fountain at a school in Manchester. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to put them on blast <laughs> since this was a few years ago. But it showed lead levels 59 times Yikes. the federal limit. So you have a child water fountain in a school with 59 times as much lead as the feds say is, you know, acceptable. So schools and daycares began the process of replacing lead fixtures and installing filters, but the problem of lead contamination persists. According to testimony from the Department of Environmental Services, also called DES, about 40% of schools have not completed testing. 
The law also does not require follow-up tests or reporting to ensure lead contamination is addressed. So like I said, I wasn't going to put that school on blast. I'm going to assume that they no longer have a water fountain with 59 times as much lead as they're allowed to have. But there's no way to check that unless I personally call up that school and I'm like, hey, what happened with that, that sink situation? Right, exactly. And now we're getting into the bills that we want to talk about today. So in 2022, legislators in both the House and Senate introduced bills to strengthen the lead testing and reporting requirements for public and private schools as well as child care facilities. So these two bills are HB 1421 and SB 452, and they have a lot in common. Anna, why don't you break it down for us? Okay. Both bills require three rounds of water testing for lead between 2016 and 2024, Both bills require schools and daycares to submit test results to a public database. Both bills require an additional round of testing after lead remediation, such as installing that new faucet or filter, to prove that lead levels are down. And the law already required schools and child care facilities to notify parents if test results show high lead levels, but HB 1421 gets more specific. It says the notification must occur in at least two places, including a website and a direct communication with parents via email or printed flyer. HB 1421 also gives DES the authority to fine schools and childcare facilities that fail to follow testing and remediation requirements. SB 452 makes a potentially even bigger change. It lowers the amount of lead tolerated in water. So SB 247, the law passed back in 2018, requires schools to install new plumbing or otherwise address lead contamination over 15 parts per billion. SB 452, one of these bills this year, would lower that limit to five parts per billion. All right, let's talk about pros and cons. So supporters of HB 1421 and SB 452 generally argue that New Hampshire needs to beef up its laws to ensure that children are not drinking contaminated water at schools and childcare facilities. The requirements for follow-up testing and a public database will create accountability for schools and daycares that have not yet tested or addressed contamination. And as you noted above, about 40% of schools have yet to complete testing for lead. Supporters of the lower five parts per billion threshold further argue that no amount of lead is safe for children to ingest. The American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends no more than one part per billion of lead in drinking water, but not all labs have tests that sensitive. Among the schools who completed one round of testing, about 15% had lead levels over five parts per billion at one or more water outlets. So on the flip side, additional testing, reporting, and remediation carries costs. First of all, DES would need a new full-time employee just to oversee this program. Schools and childcare facilities would also be responsible for at least some of the costs to address lead contamination. And while there are various federal funding opportunities, DES estimates that local schools would be on the hook for a little over $1 million to fix lead contamination if the standard is lowered to five parts per billion. And as I alluded to at the beginning, the challenge of water contamination goes beyond lead. There's this PFAS issue, which is an acronym for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. PFAS is found in everything from stain-resistant carpets to nonstick pans to firefighting foam. Granite staters are still learning the extent of PFAS contamination in New Hampshire water. There was a separate bill that would have required PFAS testing for the water in New Hampshire schools and childcare facilities, but the House sent that bill back to committee for further study because this is still such a new issue that we're all trying to wrap our heads around and figure out. So at one public hearing for HB 1421, one of these lead testing bills, 
It was suggested that the state could wait to implement new testing and remediation requirements for lead so that schools would be able to test for PFAS and lead at the same time. Mike, if I'm a listener with an opinion on how the state should address lead in school water, what should I do? All right, well, HB 1421 and SB 452 are both coming up for votes in the New Hampshire Senate. So if you have an opinion about how the state should address lead in water at schools and childcare facilities, contact your state senator and make your voice heard. You can start by finding out who represents you by clicking elected officials on the navigation bar of the Citizens Count website. So that brings us to our closing segment, Only in New Hampshire. Anna, what fun facts do you have for this week? Hopefully uh, something a little lighter than lead. I mean, that pun is just, that's just precious, Mike. So let's talk about hot dog stands. (laughs) Because for several weeks now, I have been teasing our listeners with little details about a bill introduced this year that would require the Department of Health and Human Services to make rules allowing the sale of fresh condiments such as sauerkraut, chili, cheese, beans, and fresh vegetables on push carts selling frankfurters and pre-cooked sausages. The time has come for me to share what I have learned about this critical issue. The bill was prompted by a guy with a hot dog stand who has seen a lot of sad faces because his customers want chili on their dogs and the state doesn't allow it. He can only offer prepackaged toppings like ketchup and mustard. He wants to liberate the hot dog, but of course, the issue is more complex than it appears. The real issue here is that hot dog stands have way fewer food safety rules compared to food trucks and restaurants because there's almost zero food preparation. The only real food prep with hot dog stands is pre-cooking the hot dogs, which stay hot in the cart. Also, I assume hot dogs have all sorts of preservatives that make them less likely to spoil, but that is my own editorializing here. Please fact check me before eating a raw room temperature hot dog. If we're preparing fresh food, say making chili, there are a lot more state rules about how to safely handle that food, how you clean dirty dishes, how many sinks you have, and so on. A push cart doesn't have a sink or really big counters. So the question becomes, is the food prep happening in someone's home? Is everything being stored at the right temperature? Are the surfaces clean? And suddenly it looks a lot more like regulating a restaurant than a hot dog cart. At the public hearing for this bill, HB 1095, there was a lot of discussion about whether the state could come up with some rules so hot dog stands could partner with restaurants or grocery stores or something like that to get fresh toppings. But legislators just kept on running into the problem of how you safely prep and store the food. Even chopping fresh onions, which there was a long debate about that, has to happen somewhere with a clean surface, clean knife, and then how are you transporting it? Yada, yada, yada. Ultimately, the committee discovered that you can buy tiny packets of onions and sauerkraut, like those mustard and ketchup packages, and that seemed to satisfy them. So the committee voted unanimously to kill the bill, and the rest of the House followed suit. No more debate about fresh toppings on hot dogs. But I will say there was also significant time spent debating in committee whether sauerkraut, chili, or raw onions are the best hot dog topping and also how Italian sausages are different from hot dogs. And I would just like to personally (laughs) say Italian sausages, far superior. Okay, so, and I don't want to gross anybody out, but most of the meals I have eaten in my lifetime have been produced in a home kitchen, completely uncertified by government regulators. And I am here to tell the tale. So I think that stands. Okay. But did you see that story? Did you see that story about the dude who reheated lo mein, the young guy who reheated lo mein and got like some crazy disease and died? (laughs) This was a few weeks ago. I mean, but granted, you know what? The lo mein was not made in your mom's kitchen. You know, 
it, that, that's clearly the issue. And it, it also kind of reminds me of the whole thing with the uh, lemonade stands from, I think, 2020. They were upset about people wanting to regulate lemonade stands. There's, it's interesting how much political will there seems to be in these like cart food establishments. Carted food establishments. We'll have to do an entire episode on the various degrees. Like how many wheels do you have? How big is it? Are you a small child? Because I think the <laughs> lemonade stand one ultimately came down to also how old you were. And they were like, we're going to give the little kids a pass. But if you're in your 20s and you're still trying to sell lemonade, it's time to, you know, stop eating the avocado toast and buying your fancy Starbucks and get a real job. Yeah, but like, okay, that's great. But germs don't care how old the vendor is, right? So We'll, we'll just have to save it for another episode, Mike. We're, we're going to have to get into it. I think so too. So that's probably a good time to wrap up today's episode. You can find more information and episodes at citizenscount.org. We'd like to thank Franklin Pierce University for producing and the Granite State News Collaborative for hosting. Our theme music is composed by me, Mike Dunbar. And lastly, we thank you for giving us a listen and thinking about how you can be part of what makes New Hampshire by the people for the people. <laughs>